Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you, and may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Predicting the weather is an unpredictable business. Armed with extensive knowledge of environmental factors and meteorological know-how, instruments that can detect even the slightest changes in the atmosphere, and advanced computers that can run complex deterministic models, the average weatherman still gets it wrong about 50% of the time if they try to forecast anything more than 10 days in advance. I learned this in college from an eccentric meteorology professor who never combed his hair, half-tucked a dress shirt into his bright purple sweatpants, and stapled those sweatpants at the waist to ensure a proper fit because apparently they were too large and everyone knows you don't wear a belt with sweatpants. I never learned to predict the weather in that class, but I could predict what he would be wearing any given day with stunning accuracy. He told us that you can't forecast the weather beyond 10 days, at least not with much accuracy, because the data begins to adjust itself in unpredictable ways. In the 1960s, another meteorology professor, this one at MIT, a man named Edward Lorenz, tried to use a cutting-edge mainframe computer to crunch some numbers and forecast the weather. But he quickly realized that even the slightest change in the data produced wildly different results. In this case, a simple rounding error. And the further out these projections ran, the more unpredictable they became. I went down the hall for a cup of coffee and returned after about an hour, he writes, during which time the computer had simulated about two months of weather. The numbers being printed were nothing like the old ones. That night, chaos theory was born. The school of mathematics that studies seemingly random outcomes based on the sensitivity of initial conditions. If a butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil, as the famous example goes, it could lead to a tornado in Texas. But such things are basically impossible to predict. There are simply too many factors to know how the data will react to them all or how it might change. Now this, friends, is the very predicament I find myself in this week. It's quite a pickle, really. You see, this pandemic, along with our worship recording schedule, has created a gap of several days between the time I preach a sermon and the time you hear it. I've been preparing a sermon in a response to a chaotic election that has gripped the nation before it's happened, to be viewed several days after it's happened, oblivious to whatever chaos might occur or how the data might change between now and then, or rather, between then and now. But then, as Bob Dylan once said, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Well, normally that might be true. But in these chaotic times, it feels like the wind is blowing in every direction at once. It's like standing in that 
tornado simulator that they've got over at the Cosley Zoo, where you pay a dollar to stand in a plastic chamber and get buffeted by gale force winds from every conceivable angle. Except the door is locked, and you can't get out. Like Bob Dylan, Tom Waits also crooned about the weather in his song, Emotional Weather Report. When the thunderstorms start increasing over the southeast and south-central portions of my apartment, I get upset, he laments. The extended outlook for an indefinite period of time until you come back to me, baby, is high tonight, low tomorrow, and precipitation is expected. We are standing, friends, at this very moment in the midst of a perfect storm. It began brewing a very long time ago, I suspect, but the coronavirus is when we first started to notice the sky darkening, the first few droplets of rain. Then there was the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others, the shots that killed them echoing like lightning in the distance. The summer was restless, fueled by partisan divides and pandemic fatigue and racial injustice the nation beginning to groan with a sound like thunder. Then came the wildfires out west, millions of acres scorched and thousands displaced, the smoke choking the air for miles. Then there were the actual storms, a record 28 of them, and with a month of hurricane season left to go, of course. Their waves crashing violently upon our shores and leaving ruins in their wake. With less than a month before a momentous presidential election, the president himself caught the virus, and the esteemed Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, setting up yet another political battle for the Supreme Court as the winds of change continued to rack our nerves. The virus has begun to surge again with a vengeance as the temperature drops. None of these issues have gone away. None of them have been resolved. They are simply piling on top of each other, one at a time. And now, this week, we wait in the eye of the storm, desperately trying to predict what will happen next in the midst of a hotly contested political race. In the midst of such chaotic weather, we can scarcely forecast the next 10 minutes much less the next 10 days. But precipitation is expected. We find ourselves, much like Jesus' disciples, rocked by waves and buffeted by winds and, quite frankly, a little terrified that we're all going to sink. Jesus, oddly, remains undisturbed, asleep, actually, seemingly oblivious to the chaos unfolding around him. Does he not care? Or does he know something that we don't? When Jesus rises from his slumber in this passage from the Gospel of Mark to still the storm and the crashing waves, he is echoing an ancient mythological tradition, namely the taming of chaos, which is often represented by the sea. These stories are usually part of a larger creation myth. In Babylonian scriptures, the deity Marduk slays the monstrous sea goddess Tiamat and uses her body as a foundation 
upon which he creates and orders the world. Similarly, in the Jewish tradition, Yahweh becomes uh, dominant over the sea, overcomes another creature of the deep, Leviathan, and thus asserted sovereignty over the tumultuous waves. Jesus, like those elder gods, tames the chaotic waters. Who then is this, his disciples ask in fear and trembling, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Perhaps Jesus, like Marduk and Yahweh, is creating a new world too. Not upon the slain corpse of his enemies, but a different kind of kingdom. One built on a very different kind of foundation. According to an old rabbinic legend, there is a large rock known as the foundation stone. The stone is the bedrock upon which God built all of creation. The foundation stone is hewn from the very throne of God, inscribed with her many ineffable names. According to the Talmud, God used the stone to seal away the waters of the abyss and the winds of chaos from the world, moving it only once in human history when the earth was flooded in the book of Genesis. Now, as the legend goes, when King Solomon was building the temple in Jerusalem, during the construction, he commanded his laborers to dig a deep shaft beneath the lowest levels. At about a depth of a mile and a half in those dark caverns of antiquity, they discovered a chamber, and within it, buried deep in the earth, the foundation stone. Against the strongest counsel of his advisors, Solomon ordered his men to raise the stone and relocate it to his newly constructed temple. Ropes and pulleys were brought into the cavern, along with a veritable army of swarthy workmen and sturdy shovels. And after several days and tremendous effort, a corner of the stone was finally lifted from its ancient resting place. Clearing a path, Solomon knelt down to peer into the abyss beneath and heard a mighty rushing of water and wind, the very forces of chaos itself that the stone had held at bay for countless millennia. Quickly realizing his error, he barked out orders that the foundation stone should be immediately lowered back into place before the world was once again besieged by floodwaters, rain, and howling winds, apocalyptic weather the likes of which hadn't been seen since the days of Noah. Living in 2020, I almost wonder if someone got down there and moved the foundation stone again unleashing some kind of chaos into the world. It's like when those archaeologists found that creepy obsidian sarcophagus in Egypt a few years ago. Don't open it, I said. It's cursed! Did anyone listen? No. Now, I'm not saying that has anything to do with our current troubles, but I'm also not saying that it doesn't. I'm just saying. Or not. Saying. What I am saying, what I am saying is that when we find ourselves in the midst of chaos, we need a firm foundation to
to keep us grounded and to hold those forces at bay. And that foundation, that rock of ages, friends, is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us a great many things. Love one another. Love your enemies. Forgive often. Work for a better world. Care for the poor. Speak up for the oppressed. Be generous. The smallest gestures can have grand results, like the mustard seed that grows into a mighty tree, or the butterfly that flaps its wings and causes a tornado. Resist temptation, especially the temptation to despair. All of these teachings can guide us in the midst of chaos, even, especially, if we can't predict what happens next. But Jesus offers one more lesson that seems especially timely right now. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And be careful not to confuse the two. Perhaps we confuse them more often than we should. Maybe we put too much faith, too much hope in our temporal rulers. We expect them to accomplish things that only God can do. We act as though election day were redemption day, when everything will either be saved or destroyed. I read an essay this week that said it beautifully. When did we begin to place all of our life's values in the hands of a few politicians? The author asked. When did we begin to place all of our life's values in the hands of a few politicians? It's a rhetorical question, but one that's worth answering. Friends, there's just no telling what this weather will do. Some fool could set off a powder keg that burns half the country down, or things might calm down on their own without too much incident. Predicting the weather is an unpredictable business. Predicting politics, doubly so. I was speaking with a colleague this week about the election and how to respond faithfully, and she offered a valuable bit of wisdom. Our politics are a part of who we are, she said. Our faith is who we are. We cannot allow our allegiance to any political party to undermine our Christian identity or an election to determine our supply of hope. We are more than Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians and Independents. We are disciples. Our faith informs our politics, but our politics should not inform our faith, which is rooted in a much firmer foundation. Storms come and go. There will always be more. I can forecast that much. But we will weather them, as we always have. The wind and the rain will lash at our sails again. The waves will threaten to overtake us again. The forces of chaos will be unleashed again. And Jesus 
will turn to ask us, as he always does, why are you so afraid? Amen.